You are listening to inspiring stories of ordinary people doing extraordinary stuff. Welcome to the Doolanders. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about. Wait! Okay now, from the beginning. Hit it, boys. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Doolanders. My name is Blake Collins. And unlike Blake, I'm Nick Devinas. Oh, that is just, that's it. What an intro you've just mustered up right there. Today, we are into episode 52. Um, Who do we have today, Blake? We have got the amazing Adam Schwab. Adam is as sharp as a tack. He is the co-founder and CEO of Luxury Escapes. Geez, I could do with a Luxury Escape right about now. You? Definitely. Where would you escape to if you could? Well, in fact, I'm jumping on a plane and off to Fiji on Sunday. Boom. Bang. And you know where I bought that Fiji escape? No, you didn't. Luxury escapes. Bang. Um, all right, we are going to hear from Adam. Adam started as a lawyer and then decided, you know what? Lawyering, lawyering? not for me. And uh, we follow his path to become this amazing CEO of Luxury Escapes. Just an amazing, generous man giving up his time for this. And so quick, so efficient. Bang, here he is. G'day, Adam. Welcome to the Doolanders. How are you? I'm good, guys. Thanks for having me on. Absolute pleasure. Hey, Adam, tell us, who are you and what do you do? I'm Adam Schwab and I uh, am the co-founder and CEO of a business called Luxury Escapes and we sell uh, the world's most amazing travel experiences. Yeah, look, I was having a read of your, uh, your bio. I've listened to a bunch of podcasts um, I've done some research. So what I'm interested in, so you, as you said, you're the co-founder and, and CEO of this half a billion dollar business in Luxury Escapes. You're the chair of Blue Thumb and Bookwell. You're a board member of private um, media. You're right for Crikey. You're a non-exec director of Myeloma Australia. You're an investment committee member at Save the Children. You're a podcaster from zero. I'd imagine just given someone that's walked in the door, you're a parent, you're a husband. <laughs> Mate, how do you fit all of this in? I've got a very, um, I've got a very talented wife. I think for a start, um, who also works uh, as a CFO. But uh, really, it, yeah, it's, I think it's, I think my mum actually told me many years ago. It's kind of if you want something done, you go to someone who's busy or go to a busy person. And I think yeah. I think with Lux, whilst you mentioned Lux is sort of a, getting to be a reasonable size business, as Lux gets, becomes bigger, my role becomes certainly easier. Uh, yeah. We've got an incredible team. We've got a, we had a two-day strategy session with ELT, SLT of 27 uh, amazing people. And I look back sort of 18 months ago when I came back into – I had 18 months off and 18 months ago, almost two years ago, I came back and we had seven of those people in the role. So we've built out our senior leadership team from seven to 27 and that's been a huge uh, difference for, for me personally, being able to to really rely on an incredible bunch of people to, to, to do a lot of what I used to do. Yeah, nice. And operationally at home, mate, who's who's calling the shots? Who's uh, running the the operational plan? You or your wife? Uh-huh. We do. Bit, we, I should certainly say her. <laughs> we do different parts. So she's obviously yep. the, takes the lion's share of, of kid stuff. Um, we probably share the cooking. Uh, so it, it's a, it's a, it's most more her than me. Um, yep. But certainly on weekends, I probably do a bit more with the kids. Um, yep. I've, I've never sort of understood the. The, the dads that get away with spending a whole day playing golf on the weekends. My golf's yeah. at 5 a.m. during the week and, and back by yeah. 7.30. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's certainly the lion's share with my, my lovely wife, but I try and yeah. do what I can. Nice one. 
I'm really interested if, if you think about all of the all of the stuff that you do, which you know there are so many different and, and varied things that you do. What brings you the most joy? I'm a. I think I'm a person who gets joy pretty easily. I have low standards of joy. You could say <laughs> <laughs> low um, standards of joy. Okay. Yeah, I, I've always been sort of happy doing sort of even mundane stuff and getting satisfaction out of uh, part of I guess being. Look at it, the start of our business. I did customer service tickets for the first five years, seven days a week. Uh, that's wow. not all I did, but I, I, on weekends I was there. We would have one person, and I'd go and help them because the queue would get big. So um, I think a lot of people, maybe it's the ex-lawyer. I think lawyers and bankers have that, and consultants have that sort of way about, and they just like getting things done properly. So um, whether it be work-related or home-related, um, I tend to sort of be pretty easily impressed, or pretty easily generally. I would think a fairly happy person. Um, so uh, most things do. Uh, yeah. I'm generally pretty pretty level. Like I, I don't have huge mood swings much, I wouldn't have thought. Um, so yeah, nothing specific. I just generally sort of across the board, be it family, be it, be it work, uh, tend to get enjoyment out of things that other people might not. Yeah, nice. You mentioned um, – you're a lawyer, like so. When you think back to what life was like for a, a young Adam Schwab, did you actually envisage studying to become a lawyer, um, or did you want to play cricket for Australia, or, um, or, father, <laughs> or following your father's footsteps and become a builder? Uh, good research. Uh, I'm likely to be a builder. My, uh, I'm good at Lego, but I'm, I'm not a great <laughs> sort of builder as such. So yeah. I wouldn't have been a great builder. Um, I, I wanted to be a lawyer probably when I was 11 or 12. My uncle was a lawyer. My cousin was a, was, was a lawyer. Uh, but I think long term, I, I sort of didn't envisage – I think I also wanted to run a business at some point. So, yeah, I was never fixed on what I wanted to do. But when you get reasonable marks at, at school, you sort of don't want to waste them. So, you end up doing law. You get pretty good marks at law. So, you can get in, get a, I got a job at sort of top – now the top number one firm in the country. Back then, it was probably top two or three. You don't want to waste your law marks. So, you work at the best firm. So, uh, it was – I think I realised relatively quickly because you're amongst such incredible people at, at a firm like Freehills, it, I wasn't going to become a partner. Uh, the partners there are the best lawyers in the country. I was okay. I, w- I wasn't the worst, but I, w- I certainly wasn't the best either. So I think I knew at a point, I, I, I was probably more, probably thought I was more likely going to banking. Uh, and then Jeremy, my, my co-founder, uh, was actually really good at just pushing and doing stuff. He, he sort of feels, and this is well before the days where being an entrepreneur was cool. This is 2004, where being an entrepreneur was Alan Bond, Christopher Skate. So to Jess's credit, he really pushed both of us to, to just go and do it and try it. And he he quit his job. I took a leave of absence and we just got started on our first business, which was a, a backpacker apartments business. So not not sort of online at all uh, and something we could start with minimal capital. But it was really Jess's credit to sort of push us. He left banking, I left law and 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 we gave it a crack. Do you, do you still remember that moment when... Um, your mate Jeremy sidled up to you and you, you know, you, what I think you described you were a, a small cog in a big wheel at um, Free Hills. But do you remember that specific moment where he said, mate, we're out. You're out of there and I'm out of the bank. Let's go and have a crack at this thing. It didn't really happen in one hit. And that, that was probably the, the beauty of it. It was, yeah. the idea was actually mine um, in the sense, like Jez was pushing to do a business of some sort, but, but obviously wanted to wait for the right business. And I got this idea because, I had a, a, par- a girlfriend then who was from Scotland and she had friends from Scotland staying in a terrible, disgusting apartment on, on a street called Grey Street in Melbourne, which, which is famous for, at the time, prostitutes being on it. So we sort of saw these horrendous living conditions and thought we can just we can do a better job. So 
we that's that's sort of how I talked that. I said, Jess, this is probably a business here. And Jess said, yeah, let's let's give it a crack. So what he was really good at was saying, yeah, this is an idea. Why don't we try it? Like there's nothing to lose. So we, we actually set up a couple of apartments. We set up our first apartment and I was still working as a lawyer then. And for six months after I was, so we only – and again, what Jez was good at again was in April, so this was November 2004, in April 2005 is when I took a leave of absence from Freehills and Jez wasn't working at ANZ. So that was probably the biggest step, but we had two pilot apartments going for six months. So we could see what we in these days call product market fit. Back then there was no name yep. for it, but yep. we know it was product market fit there. We knew, we knew there was something that customers wanted. We didn't actually, re- we didn't think at the time that this was sort of through summer and backpackers come in summer. So and we didn't realize it would get a bit trickier in winter, but we, were, we, we sort of did it one by one. So we'd set up an apartment, set up another one, set up another one, use the cash flow to finance the next. So it, it was, yes, it was degree of risk, but the risk was really mitigated. I could have gone back to Freehills. I could have gone to Macquarie or UBS or whatever afterwards if it didn't work. If, if the business wasn't working, we would have just stopped investing in new apartments. So there was a degree of risk, but it's not like, it's not like now. If I... If I was a lawyer at age 42 and, lead, and I was a partner earning a million bucks a year and have two kids in private schools and a mortgage, that, that's real risk. So leaving yeah. that kind of job is risk. When we did it at 24, 25, there was really minimal risk when you think about it. Yeah, yeah. Got it. Uh, so you, you, you ran that business for a period of time. And like, tell us how um, you know, my table came about. You... You had a bit of a look at what was going on in the market. You saw what Top Table was doing in the UK. Um, and did you become the Uber Eats before Uber Eats? <laughs> uh, let's take a little step back. And it's, it's a good question. But so we had this business, this eventually became a corporate housing business. Yep. And what we should have done is Airbnb. Airbnb started roughly at the same time, a little bit later. And Airbnb built the platform. It's now a $100 billion US business. We were effectively the principal. So we would let, let rent or actually buy apartments and then we'd sub-license to sub-lease them to corporate tenants. Problem is, you're, A, you've, it's, a, it's, a, it's really not so much capital intensive. It is if you buy it, but it's labor intensive. So every time we set up a new apartment, we'd have to do it ourselves. It didn't We didn't really scale it well at all. It was really locally. It was only Melbourne. Um, there are some, there was a competitor that did it, that did it nationally, but... No one's there's there's one or two business out of states, but nobody's really got the corporate housing model to, to scale particularly well, as opposed to the platform model. But as part of that, we had, we did buy and sell half a dozen properties and had this million dollar sort of capital gain from buying and selling the properties and sort of leasing them to ourselves. And we had that million bucks, and we thought 2009, 2010, and the web's getting a bit more commercial, a bit web 2.0. And I happened to be in the, in the UK, and we saw, as you said, saw a business called Top Table, which has now been bought by by for open table which has been bought by booking.com but it was the top table was the predominant restaurant booking site in the uk and had a discount element to it so if you wanted you basically type in a postcode uk runs off postcodes and you'd see sort of or look at a map and say here's the 25 restaurants um it's a bit like eat club is now eat club but really followed that model i'm not sure if you're familiar with that business there in australia and the states but if you wanted so if you wanted to you search for a in the map, we'd search for a location and here's the 10 restaurants around. And this one's doing 50% off. This one's doing free main, whatever it is. And you'd, you'd book it on the site as well. So it was a booking site and a discount site. We thought, that's a pretty cool idea. Nobody's doing it in Australia. So we we started doing that and we had no idea. We'd, we'd never run an online business before. So we had a mate of mine who was based in Israel who did the dev for us. He was a bit of a unicorn, could do product, could design, could do dev. Um, so we, we, we got him to do a bunch of the work. We started signing up the, the restaurants and it started working out a tech solution. And the tech solution we come up with was what we call wireless printers. So at the time, mobile, you had mobiles, but so the, 
the legacy business. So Menulog was sort of dabbling in that. They were originally a paper-based business, but they sort of were dabbling. It was really, they were sending faxes, they were calling. It was it was quite backwards. So we, Jeremy and I came up with this idea to put this sort of mobile little printer. It looks a bit like an FPOS machine and it would yeah. print, out, print out the order and you'd have the order uh, and, and the restaurant would just say yes or no. So that was sort of, in a way, groundbreaking technology. And again, it was the difference between Uber Eats and and what we, we were my table became part of Menulog. And Menulog obviously still exists and been bought by the UK giant called Just Eat, sold for almost a billion dollars. But but what what we did was we'd work with restaurants or takeaway places that had a delivery service, which meant that you'd sort of work with call, the the lower to mid tier. It's your local pizza joint, your, your kebab joint, your curry shop, whatever that was. You wouldn't work with the sort of call it higher end or even mid end restaurants because they just didn't have delivery. Uh, and what Uber Eats did was solve that problem. Uber Eats were able to work out how to get delivery. Obviously, how it's existing. And it's not just Uber, obviously, DoorDash and, and um, uh, Deliveroo do it as well. And those three businesses all solve that issue, that delivery issue, uh, which yeah. obviously takes capital. And so we weren't trying to do that. And the menu log guys eventually did it, but it was slow to get there, which is why Uber Eats were able to get such great market share. Yeah, yeah, got it. So then what came next? And like from what I understand, you saw what what Groupon was doing um, perhaps over in the States and that looked like a, a pretty good business model. Did that inspire what came next? Yeah, so I think let's go back to sort of January 2010 and Groupon was – Jez was somehow got a – free course at Harvard. I don't know exactly how that worked out. But he was at Harvard. He was doing this free course. He got a Groupon. Uh, <laughs> he did not get a Groupon because I don't think Groupon's <laughs> worked at Harvard. Uh, but he saw Groupon on the morning show. And that Groupon was the apparently the fastest business ever to reach a billion dollars in TTV or, 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 or gross sales. Is that right? everywhere. But in Australia, they hadn't. no one had heard of this model in Australia. You had the entertainment book, which is kind of like an offline sort of version of it. But no one had done it, what Groupon were doing, which is kind of the – enough people get this deal, the deal's on and the beauty place or the restaurant gets a whole bunch of customers and customers get a discount. That was sort of the original principle of Groupon and it just took America by storm. Uh, and then we, Jeremy saw that and said, this, this my table thing or this restaurant thing is, is a really good business, but the problem is we need real scale. You need 700,000 places in each city and that's going to cost a heap of money. We had a million bucks, but that would go pretty quick. He said, well, why don't we do this Groupon thing? You need one deal. It was deal a day back then. We get a deal a day, we market it to our, this audience, you build up an audience, and you then start doing the restaurant thing with that same audience and sort of cross-pollinate. That was the original plan. So we said, we'll put the restaurant thing on hold and we started the Groupon thing that we called Zoopon. Started that in January and eventually launched it, built it for six months. We still had the, the corporate, house, corporate housing business, should add. That was sort of running and funding it all, along with the million bucks we'd, we'd, we'd saved. And we just basically launched in, in late July and we just didn't really know what we were doing, had the chicken and egg problem. Uh, but we managed to scrounge together some merchants to sort of get sort of five or six deals for the first five or six days and just constantly hustling, trying to find customers, trying to find clients. It was uh, just a bunch of clueless guys and, and girls just trying to work out what we were doing because we, we really had no idea how to run a, a sort of e-commerce business. In fact, most people didn't. And at the same time, a lot of other people saw Groupon as well. So at one point, there's about 80 Groupon clones in Australia, of which there are really two left. Groupon itself, no, none left. There's Groupon itself, and, and we've got a whole suite of Scoopon and Kudo deals, etc. cetera. Uh, but yeah, so everybody cloned this Groupon business, and we can talk about how that went in a second if, if you want. But you know, so everybody sort of, we pivoted from the restaurants to the Groupon. We ended up going back to the restaurants 
but we, that was sort of our journey in the in the really early days of e-commerce. Yeah, hey, I'm I'm really interested in what was driving you and Jeremy and the guys and girls in in your team at, at that time. Like, was it hey, let's create a a really successful customer experience? Hey, let's generate a business that's generating a truckload of cash to you know line our pockets like what what fundamentally was joining was was driving you as a person to get out of bed each morning and create what you were creating i i, I don't think it was that thought through <laughs> i think that was right. we had this corporate apartments business and so that was which was making money so then we we tried to leverage that we realized it wasn't scalable we wanted to say more scalable so we started the deals the zoopom which became deals.com.au so we're working on that business and we just a, we try to do try to sell stuff that we would buy. So we would we we would always want to buy discounted food. Like we're we're inherently really frugal guys. So we still are. It's kind of how we're able to keep ourselves in the shoes of customers. Uh, so all our business has been really value driven. So we wanted to put restaurant deals on there that we would buy, and we we generally did. We did only at these places uh, for for a period. So we we were the customer. So we wanted to build something that we would we would like and that we would buy, and we were pretty confident we we could understand. One thing we are, we think we are reasonable at is, I think most product-led businesses are, is sort of understanding what customers want before they tell you. Like we're, ne- we're never yeah. big on, we do a bit, bit now, but we're never big on market research and saying, asking a thousand people, what do you want? We backed ourselves to create a product people would buy. Uh, and we're pretty good at that. It's one of the things we are pretty reasonable at. What we weren't good at is understanding how businesses work because we never run a business of scale. We got to sort of 30, 40 staff within a year, if not less. Uh, and that's, that's a whole ch- set of challenges. Building the dev, Working out how to market this thing, uh, the chicken and the egg problem. Uh, and remember, we were bootstrapped, so we had to make money pretty quickly. Uh, yeah. So we couldn't go and most of our competitors were venture backed or or had a bit like Scoopon was launched out of Catch of the Day, Groupon was launched out of the US Groupon, a lot of TV stations did it. We didn't have that. We all we had was ourselves really. We we had to be profitable super quickly, and we were. We really profitable almost from day one. Uh, we paid our loans back really quickly. Um, there were sort of issues over the journey and we can go into more about that if you want but it, it certainly wasn't smooth sailing from day zero but but overall if you look at the general trend we're, we're generally growing throughout uh, and we're learning we had heaps of trial and error and what something jeremy actually is really good at is if he sees a trend and we saw the trend of travel being really good so we started with restaurants and day spas as in practically a marketing services business for small business so mm. we would go to a restaurant let's create a package we'll sell that package for you we'll get you 200 people who'll buy it 150 will redeem it. Uh, you'll break even basically on the package. So you won't make any money off that. But if you do a good job with these customers, they'll come back. doesn't always work for various reasons because unfortunately restaurants aren't always sophisticated, but that was the principle. But what we found is with travel, the issues we had with places like restaurants and day spas, which was some places just wouldn't, some places would be incredible. Some places would be terrible. So some, they wouldn't accept the booking. They give poor food. They give a limited menu, whatever. Sometimes, Businesses don't do a job, great job with customers. And we were reliant on these businesses to, to service our customer because they're our customer. Yeah. But we found with, with travel, there was two really good things. One is hotels really care about, they're, they're the hospitality business and especially branded hotel. You've got TripAdvisor. They don't want a bad view on TripAdvisor. They're generally geared towards hospitality. So in that sense, it was, it was really good. The second problem we solved was much bigger basket size. So the CPA we could afford to spend was much higher as in cost yeah. of acquisition. So instead of having... 
if you look at uh, for our original deals business, the average basket was fifty bucks, so fifty buck restaurant deal. For travel, it's two thousand dollars, so you can afford yeah. to spend a lot more on a customer who's buying travel than a customer who's buying a massage. So that allows what we call much better unique economics. We can spend a lot more acquisition because you know your lifetime value is higher. That's true in the business throughout. Now AOV continues to increase to this day. So out of deals, there's all this, you know, there's this trend, bigger basket size, heads towards travel. The deci- the decision to split out luxury escapes, like how did that come about? Obviously, data-led decision, you were talking about cost of acquisition and I'd imagine your you know, CAC to LTV ratios and all those sorts of things that looked yeah. all, all, um, all right to head that way. Was it an easy decision or how did that all come about? Yeah, so our business was evolutionary, not revolutionary, in the sense that we were constantly adapting, changing, learning. And we, we saw travel probably 2010, 2011. That was where we, we could see a lot of profits coming. But we still didn't want it. We didn't, we still had the original, the legacy part of the business. And we still actually, to this day, have the legacy part of the business. And again, at the moment, we're still doing some changes to it. But that remains, still gets a lot of traffic. We still do tens of millions of dollars in sales from scoop on deals, kudo, treat me. So it's not as if this doesn't exist anymore. We just re-pivoted our focus towards travel more and my focus became much more travel. And if you think of sort of 2013, we launched Luxury Scapes in 2013 really to have a, a, a cleaner brand for our hotel partners. And you think so, our, our brand was deals.com.au and Ufa and kudo. And those brands were, were kind of everything brands. We'd sell travel, we'd sell product, we'd sell experiences, restaurants, day spas, whatever. Uh, but we created Luxury Escape so we can go to brands like Ritz-Carlton and Grand Hyatt and Sofitel and these great brands in Intercontinental, these great brands and say, we're going to do a, a luxury travel site that provides great value to customers and great inspiration to customers, but only has travel, which we couldn't have done with deals.com.au. So we had a lot of learnings from deals and Luxury Escape effectively was that clean run. So we can, all the mistakes we made, everything we learned about customer service, about MPS, all that kind of stuff was we had the luxury of having a dry run and really a three to four year dry run. And that's why Luxury Escapes has had an MPS of 70 plus, almost its whole existence. Our clients love what we do. Our customers love what we do. And CSAT's at 95% plus. Uh, so it's, we've, had, we've been able to take the mistakes we made off our first few businesses. And they, they weren't uh, fatal mistakes, but just learnings and put it into Luxury Escapes and start really fresh and clean. Just out of interest, when it came time to look at rebranding or creating a new brand in Luxury Escapes, how long did that process take for you to go, well, you know, you've already got a massive following and customer base and supplier base with deals.com.au. To start again, you've talked about the benefits of doing that in Mm. hindsight. How hard was it at the time to make that decision? We've effectively got to start again and go out and rebrand, market the new brand to everyone we've been dealing with. I remember the full pages in the <sighs> in the papers. Yeah, well, we still we still do we still do them. We used to do we simply so yeah, a few things happened. So we never stopped running travel deals on deals.com, for example, and we still do. And same with Kudo. So we never stopped the original one. And you're right, guys, and said so every time you start a new brand, let's say let's say we re- rebranded Kudo to Luxury Escapes, you'd lose half your audience because people are just used to the brand that they used to. And that's happened multiple times. We used to own Living Social Brand. We had to give that back and that became Kudo. lost half the members because people just are used to getting emails on a certain brand. If you send them anything different, you lose half. And that's happened multiple times. But Luxury Escapes is different. That was a, a completely fresh brand. So what we did is we, we just started marketing under Luxury Escapes. And it looks similar to deals, just different logo. I think we had Katrina back then. Uh, and what we also did was we, we actually had just bought 
So there's a couple of reasons for Luxury Escapes. One was we wanted to do we would wanted to do it anyway. So in sort of 2013, uh, both Jez and I were saying we just need to start a new brand. I think Jez found Luxury Escapes. It was owned by a travel agent in Sydney. Actually, paid 100 grand for it. Uh, at the dot com, ironically, so that was a, a pretty good buy in hindsight. We got this this domain name. We were always planning to to move to start this luxury escapes brand and start slowly pivoting off Kudo and deals. But what we for travel, but what we ended up doing is we bought Kudo. We actually bought Kudo from Nine MSM and Gin, David Ginjal, who's a lovely guy who was running at the time, said, "You guys can't keep this getaway." We had that had a business called Getaway Lounge that was associated with the show. And he said, you guys can't keep this brand because we have a TV show and we need to run both. So we said, that's fine. We don't want it anyway. We gave back Getaway Lounge. We, we rolled those members, which we bought into Luxury yep. Escapes. So Luxury Escapes had caught 100,000 people who were kind of potential purchasers and maybe 10,000 became purchasers. And then we built the list up. So it was a semi-rolling start, not fully, but we had the learnings and the know-how. So we knew how to do it. We knew how to get the deals, knew how to do the newspaper marketing, like you said. So it was a really, we, we came in with a running start. So while it wasn't like a fresh brand, it was a, it was a new brand that hadn't been known, but we had a lot of learnings. Yeah. So you now you've, you've actually created a, a curated marketplace now, haven't you? You're not only solving for, um, the the average person and you know their want to travel to a luxury destination and hotel but you're, you're actually solving for the hotel's problems aren't you yeah so i'll explain so our business now has well it's going to have many but it's got it's got two main parts our legacy business which you call our flash business and our relatively new business we call our marketplace business or our lux premium collection so I'll talk about that flash because that's what we start. So if you go back to the, the deals days originally, deals.com days, is what we do is we do a limited time promotion. It used to be 24 hours and it, it came two weeks. Limited time promotion for a, a vendor. Could be day spa, could be restaurant, could be hotel. And then Luxury Escapes was that originally. So we'd run two-week campaigns for the JW Marriott in Phuket and it would be a, a discount, often 30 to 40% value. So it wouldn't be necessarily dollars off the price of booking.com, but we'd include din- dinners and breakfasts and lunches and day spas and transfers and all this great stuff that customers want. So let's say booking.com might sell it for $2,500 for, for eight days. We'd sell it for 2000 bucks for eight days, but include full board. So breakfast, lunches, dinners, always really good stuff. So it's really worth three and a half grand. So customers would see it. We'd have some terms and conditions like non-refundable and you'd only have two weeks to purchase it, but you'd have plenty of time to travel. So we'd have some some um, things that, that weren't exactly the same as, as booking.com, but but for all intents and purposes, the same hotel. And customers loved it, especially our, our core demo in the early days was kind of Fairfax News Corp readers aged 55 plus, have lots of time, have plenty of money, uh, can can travel slightly off the really peak weeks and also recognize value, but want to spend a bit of money. So that was our, our really core database. And we just started doing that. So this two-week flash campaigns for places really centered in Thailand originally, then Vietnam, then Bali and Australia, obviously. And now more recently, Maldives and, and Europe and the US. But we had this flash. So the way I, I, I sort of describe flash is, I don't know if you guys go to supermarkets very often, but when you go to a supermarket, at the end of the aisle, there's a special. It could be barbecue shapes, could be dynamo uh, laundry detergent, could be whatever. And that's usually half price, but that changes every week. So brands do that to get great promotion and you'll, you'll push lots of sales through, but then it changes every week versus the aisle itself, which has everything. So if you think of Luxury Escape's original flash business, that was like the end of the aisle. So we'd work with this incredible, these incredible hotels, could be Ritz-Carlton's, could be Gabby Marriott's, could be Park Hyatt's, could be Hilton's, could be independent brands, and it'd be only for two weeks at a really great price. So the things we did for customers there was we gave, obviously, great pricing, but also, also great inspiration. So if you didn't know where to go, 
uh, unlike Booking.com, which has 100,000 properties or Flightsense, which has 50,000 properties, we would only have at, at one time 40 properties on the site. So we gave that great curation as well. So great pricing, great curation. Yep. And cu- yep. customers would pay us in advance. So we'd have great cash flow too. So yeah, that was all, re- yeah. <laughs> all really good. Uh, but coming to, just a, and it's a long wind answer your question, but coming to COVID, even before COVID, realized as great a business as the flash business is, it's probably capped at a couple of billion globally. So clearly we can keep, keep we're sort of 500 million now or even a bit more. We can certainly grow from where we are, but we probably can't grow to $100 billion. We're not going to hit booking.com or Airbnb. At the same time, a couple of our shareholders, guys called Gabby and Hesse Leibovich, I'm not sure if you guys have spoken to them, they started Catch of the Day. And Catch of the Day had a similar problem five years ago. They were a flash sales product business and they were sort of stuck at 250, 300 million bucks in turnover each year. They became a marketplace. So instead of selling one thing every day, they started selling 10,000 products and people would build bigger baskets. And Gabby and Hesse saw this and they became a $1.5 billion business. West Farmers now owns them. And Gabby and Hesse saw this journey and saw what it did for customers and said, you guys have to do marketplace. And we... And we resisted at first. And, and the reason we resisted is not because we didn't see the benefit of having more products. Our customers wanted more products. But the problem we had was we didn't want to create this paradox of choice in that we, our business was the end of the aisle. We were yeah. famous for curation, inspiration, not, not creating this huge paradox of choice. We didn't want to kill that. We didn't want to confuse the customer. But what, so what we ended up doing was to, to avoid that is we now have two businesses. We have our flash business, which is what we email out every day. It's what people know us for. It's what you see in the newspapers. We've also got a second business that we call our our marketplace or Lux Premium Collection. So previously, so before the pandemic or even 18 months ago, or even 13 months ago, if you did a search for, for London, you probably would see maybe one great hotel package or maybe nothing. If you did a search for Moscow, you'd certainly see nothing. If you did a search for New York, maybe you'd see something. If you did a search for Bali, you'd see one or two things. But we'd have 40 things around the world out of hundreds, hundreds of thousands of properties. So what we, what we did in as the pandemic hit, we had to choose. We could have done what every other travel business did, which was sack lots of staff. But we have an amazing team, the best BDMs in the country, the best tech guys in the country. We don't want to lose this this talent. In hindsight, it proved to be really valuable because now talent's incredibly hard to get. But even at the time, we didn't want to lose our great talent. But we had nothing to do because hotels, half the hotels were shut. We didn't want to spend a huge amount in dev on a legacy product. So what we said, let's build this new marketplace product while we can. And what that meant was our our developers started working on what's called channel managers, which is a way to, li- to link between us and hotels, which is what yep. Booking and Expedia have. And our sales team started speaking to hotels. Half our team focused on Flash and the other half started focusing on what we call Marketplace. So instead of going to a hotel and saying, we want an amazing deal for two weeks only and you'll make lots of money and it needs to be really discounted, we said, we're going to run your packages 365 days a year. It could be in Mexico, it could be in London, it could be the Corinthia in London, it could be Shangri-La in Singapore, wherever. And we, we need some sort of discount. So it could be a free breakfast. It could be uh, a room upgrade, could be a small discount off the price. But usually we're at par pricing with inclusions. So the difference is instead of being 40% off, we might be 15% off, but you can always buy it. So you can do a search for London now on Luxury Escape. You'll see 10 properties always on at discounts to expediumbooking.com, which could be free breakfast, could be free dinner, whatever it is. Uh, you'll get the best value from us everywhere you go. So we've maintained that, that curation and value. So we're not selling every property in london we'll sell no more than sort of 25 uh, we're not selling every dubai's got a thousand five-star hotels we're yeah. never going to sell a five thousand five-star dubai hotels we'll sell one flash hotel 10 directly connected hotels and maybe a bed bank connection to fill out the long tail if you really want to stay at a certain hotel but we're going to still give that great curation while also giving that those great that great value so you know you'll get the best value from us everywhere you go now you can go to mexico you can go to new orleans you can go to 
Austin, you can go to Moscow, you can go to London, you can go to Italy, you can go to Rome, you can go to France, everywhere you go, we'll have the best package. And that's growing every day. Yeah, yeah. I imagine, um, given where we are with COVID and you know, things are opening up, that there's a, you've got plenty of people coming your way at the moment. When you say that, do you mean customers or vendors? Both. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Vendors are a mixed bag. So some are absolutely desperate to work with us and we're always happy to help. Uh, and some are being a bit more cautious and they're just unsure of how demand will come back. Uh, often if countries aren't open yet, they're a bit, un- bit wary to do too much and lock too much in in case it gets sort of extended. Yeah. Uh, so look at, uh, so think about our pre-pandemic five – so pre-pandemic, our top eight destinations were Thailand, Bali, uh, Australia, Vietnam, Maldives, Malaysia um, – Probably UK, US. Uh, yeah. Five of those eight aren't back yet. So Singapore, yeah. oh, Singapore, sorry. Singapore, Thailand, Bali, Vietnam, Malaysia, all aren't really selling anything. Like it will sell a little bit of late. For our really rusted on customers are getting really, sm- are really smart and buying in advance and getting incredible deals. But for most Australians, certainly, uh, we're pretty wary and understandably so. I've been hit pretty hard through border closures and, and obviously lockdowns. So you speak to most Australians, they're, it was a bit different. Even last October, people were really keen to travel. But I think Omicron's really hit Australians confident. And it's coming back. Our, our traffic's at record levels. But our per- people are really keen to purchase within Australia uh, yeah. and, and South Pacific. So Fiji is still incredible, incredibly popular. Other parts, South Pac's popular. But places like Thailand, Bali, uh, Maldives is still pretty good. But Thailand, Bali and Europe and US hasn't quite come back yet. I think people are just, just waiting and seeing, waiting to see what happens with flights. Uh, Bali hopefully opens... 28 March, 28 March, that should give us a real shot in the arm. Thailand yeah. is notionally open, but that they need to um, ease their quarantine rules a bit if you get COVID. So uh, I think as Omicron continues to fade, and we see it just around the world, countries easing restrictions, left, right and centre. Boris has taken off everything in the UK. I was on next week. No no isolation if you get it. Uh, so as that continues, and assuming we get no variants, touch wood, uh, we, we'll, I think we're... We, we're seeing a continued increase in traffic and a continued increase in sales. And our sales are almost what they were pre-pandemic with a higher cost base, but almost what they were. And we've got refunds coming through still because people are still chopping and changing. Uh, but we're getting we're getting pretty close. Yeah. Nice. Great to hear. Hey, man, I'm interested in what type of culture do you, you build in your businesses? So, you know, you, you, you speak to a lot of um, founders and startups and you hear the word hustle um, a lot. And, you know, you think about now after COVID and, you know, this well-reported, the great resignation and, you know, people will want far more purpose-led lives and and work. When you think about the experience that you create for the people within your business, what's that look like and feel like? I'm a bit biased, obviously. So I think we create this great experience, but you're probably best to ask our team. But our MBS is... is What do you aim to create then? What do you... you, How do you want them to feel? We want people to love coming to work and want to come to work and be proud to work for us. I think yeah. by and large, we, we generally do achieve that, uh, but you can always get better. Uh, so, and what we what we're really focus on is how do we create a, a business of entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs, of people who, who love creating, who it's not a, a founder-driven uh, product growth, it's, it's team-driven uh, and team thinking of the customer. Now, we had, a, a, again, a two-day session with our ELT, SLT over the last couple of days and and the motivation and, and we've got an incredible team and the quality of, of output from this team was, was amazing uh, and we've never had this before. We've had pockets of brilliance in the business uh, but we've never had 
27. And then we've got uh, sort of operational leadership teams and even people on – I love it when someone who's called a, answering, answering and we've got some – we don't really hire – even our call it our entry level positions are, are really talented people. So people who, who answer call it our phone consultants are generally the best consultants from Flight Centre who come and work for us, and we pick the best and we pay the best. So we, we yeah. tend to work with really good people. So even call it our entry level roles are incredible people, but they'll they'll come with, with fantastic ideas. Adam, why don't we do this? So we, we definitely try and foster a, a culture of entrepreneurship and and a, certainly it's like every startup, maybe we're not a startup anymore, but we have a, a big get shit done sort of mentality. We want yep. to achieve stuff. Uh, we, reward, we try and be as much of a meritocracy as possible. Obviously, as you get to sort of three, four, five hundred employees, that becomes harder. Uh, but we want to reward people who, who perform really well, who treat people really well, who treat customers really well. Uh, we want to try, we try and pay well, but we, we probably don't pay as well as caught the US, the Facebooks, the Googles, and we know we probably can't. But yeah. we want to create an environment that people still want to stay with us. And certainly for our, develop, our developer team, which who's, we think is world-class, it's creating really great products. If you look yeah. at the travel sector, we yeah. haven't talked about it, but our team is building some of the best products. Look at the, the best, two best product travel business, the most valuable travel business is Booking.com and Airbnb. And Booking.com hasn't innovated in 20 years since they've created that list. They just optimize it. They've done nothing. And they've tried, they've just sort of failed. And Airbnb was looking amazing. And then... I think Brian's done a fantastic job, but they're not a product business anymore. They've basically killed every product. Their, their best product in the last six months was a Wi-Fi speed test. They're not a product-driven company. Yeah. So we think we've got we've gone from thirty devs, thirty devs product and design to ninety-three through the wow. pandemic. So we've yeah. huge investment ahead of the curve in in talent. Uh, and we've been able to retain a really good amount of that talent. So yeah, you talk about the great resignation, great reshuffle, whatever. Uh, and I, I'm dubious that, that that really exists, but so I think. Bad businesses have always lost people. I think bad businesses have 30, 40, 50% turnover. I don't think you can blame COVID for that. I think you can just blame bad management. Our turnover tends to be sort of 20%, but probably 5% regretted. So that's the number we look at. What's that regretted turnover level? Yep. And how long have people who have stayed? So if someone stayed, well, one of our favorite team members resigned after, I think, 12 years a couple of weeks ago. Uh, like Obviously, it's really sad to see someone like that move on. You've got a great opportunity and, and, and really great, great remuneration. But like you sort of, I think a ten year plus ten year, we're sort of still really happy with that, and, and yeah. he may come back, he may not. We, we actually have also a really good record of people who do leave coming back. Probably, if you look at our regretted turnover, I reckon at least 25 percent comes back. Uh, yeah. Which again, we're, so we obviously we want to see people leave on good terms. So we want we want we want to leave on good terms with our our team. And sometimes like my my former GM Blake Hutchinson, who, who moved to Flipper, I was t- devastated to see him leave. But he's got an incredible role managing a. $100 million plus business. And yeah. that, that's also a great feather in our cap. So we, we love to see our team members go and do other bigger and better things. We love to more give them the opportunity internally, but sometimes you just don't have that. So yeah. we yeah. want to create opportunities for people to grow uh, as team members and, and make sure we're not stifling growth. And we're not 100%. There's certainly instances where we, where we get it wrong, uh, but we want to invest in our team and, and have an, uh, grow people and, and make yeah. sure that we're, we're customer first. Yeah. Nice one. Hey, mate, Quick, a couple of quick uh, last questions. So... But listening to you, having not met you before, but listening to you, you go at a million miles an hour. I read up <laughs> front the 85,000 things that, that you do within your life. So you need a, a truckload of resilience and consistency to perform really well over a, a long period of time. And, and you've done that. You've nailed that. So how do you look after you? Um, and how do you think about your performance on a day-to-day basis? Uh, I probably spend a huge amount of time thinking about that. I, I try and sort of, 
I'm pretty trying to be pretty healthy. My wife became vegan three years ago. I became vegetarian a couple of years ago. I've never really drunk, so I don't drink, never smoked, don't drink coffee, never taken drugs, all that kind of stuff. So I'm naturally sort of pretty, pretty straight laced, uh, boring, you might say. So um, I sort of exercise every day, a bit running or Peloton or whatever. So I sort of naturally pretty competitive um, and just try and stay sort of as active as possible. Um, I don't think there's anything I sort of do too specific. Um, well, hang on. So you've just replayed back. You don't drink, you don't smoke, you're a vegetarian and you exercise every day. I think you do do stuff specifically. It's like reading a GP's pamphlet or something. Yeah, that's right. Like that's, that's you know, optimising your health and fitness. So um, that's what you do. Nice. Okay. So you've done a lot and, um, and we're really keen to see what's next on your to-do list. I think we still got a bit of work to do at Lux. So I guess part of our, our session is we want to be uh, the world's most, we want to create the world's most love travel experiences. And that we've already got the highest NPS, but we want to be, uh, so our, our brand recognition in Australia is about 50%. So it's, it's we were 20% two years ago. So we're, we're, we're continually improving. Uh, so we think we've got, we're a pretty reasonable business here. We think we can grow so three, four X in Australia, but we want to do what we've done in Australia around the world. Uh, and that's part of what Marketplace is, is to, is to take what we've created in Australia and be a world-class business, uh, create world-class tools, like trip planning tools and guest experience tools and stuff that nobody's doing. So we think somebody's going to do it. We think we can – why not us, I think, is, is sort of part of that thinking. Uh, so we, think, oh, we want to have a business that thousands of people worldwide that people love to work for and that customers love to use. So that's certainly – I think we've got a, a lot of work to do there. And I think that's called the short-term chapter. And I think, I guess, talking for me personally and partly selfishly is is – the only reason to really make money is we don't, I don't spend much money and there's probably a limit to how much you can spend, but how do, how do we use, and, and the Canva guys are uh, amazing at this, but yeah. how do we use whatever wealth we can get over the next call it, 10 years? So I'm 42 now, so I'm sort of call it early fifties. How do we then do what Andrew Carnegie did and take a, call it a business approach to philanthropy. And instead of trying to make money, but the goal is trying to help as many people as possible. And there's certainly areas like things like refugees and, and underprivileged. That's kind of what I'd love to, to work with in the, in the future. How many people, the metric isn't how much profit you make, the metric is how many lives can you change? And I'm speaking sort of, I guess, out of school because I haven't done enough yet. And it's part of the, so I guess the Buffett principle of want to try and make enough money that can actually make a real difference in 10 to in 10, from 10 years time and for the last hopefully 30 years of my life I can live to sort of 80, 85 and spend that last 30 years doing what Andrew Carnegie did and trying to make a difference uh, in a positive way but easier to talk about it uh, probably harder to do it yeah uh, we believe in you Adam <laughs> well given your track record mate you'll make it happen well um, hey Adam thank you so much for joining us on the Do Landers it's uh, it really is a an inspirational, aspirational story. We love the way that you go about it, the energy that, that you put into creating amazing teams and building great businesses. And um, can't wait to see what you do next. That that uh, want to um, give back and that business approach to philanthropy, can't wait to see what you do it. So thanks, Adam. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on the show. Appreciate it. Thanks, Adam. There we go, Blake. That was Adam Schwab. What did you think? Uh He's such an astute businessman. Jeez, he, he goes, mate. You really got to hang on to the conversation <laughs> because it was just a million miles an hour. That's how quick his, his brain is thinking. But I loved his humility. You know, yeah. Grounded, knows what's important, um, doing some amazing things from a, a career perspective. But, um, yeah, just a, a, a great authentic man.
Yeah. Well, if you want to hear more stories of some of our entrepreneurs, there's at least 16 episodes in our back catalogue. A few of them are Sam Wood, who launched a tech business after becoming The Bachelor. Mm. Um, we've got, bear with me here, Tim Washington, episode 12, who started an electric vehicle charging business that's now taking over the country. It's quite amazing. You've got Charles Davidson, episode 19, who's the founder of the Peninsula Hot Springs. Geez, I could go a hot spring. Yeah. About now. Yeah, sizzle away. <laughs> sizzle away. Is that what you think when you think hot springs? Yeah, I, I do. Away. You're sort of just boiling yourself. Yeah. <laughs> There's Jackie Kajitsky, who again, she's her oh. her world has exploded. What do you call her her world? The name of a company, That's Meraki, it. Meraki Meraki Produce, yeah, episode yeah. twenty one. That's an amazing story, and check her out on Instagram. Maddie Nation, the accidental entrepreneur, episode twenty two. Nation Partners, what a business! Yeah, really good. And then we have Tim Reid, one of Australia's great leaders, episode 42, who's uh, the president of the Business Council of Australia, MD of Potentia uh, Capital, uh, amazing guy. And that's just to list a few. Check out our website, thedolanders.com, if you want to see a list of our episodes. See you next time. Actually, who's coming up next? <laughs> <laughs> we got no idea. Anyway, tune in for the next episode of The, the Doolanders. Is that a new thing? Are we going to go with it? Let's do it. Okay.